Wanted again thank you all for the hospitality that you show me. I feel welcome every time that I'm here. Uh, Ryan introduced me as Joel. My last name is ten letters, four syllables, and I told everybody yesterday it's 100% Polish. So Zaborowski is my last name. Um, Stacy and I, just the first time Stacy's been able to be with me. Uh, we've been married almost 32 years. This August will be 32 years. We have three adult children in their 20s. Our two oldest are both married, and our oldest and her husband have a six-month-old daughter who is our first grandchild, and we love her dearly. I've served as a pastor for the past almost 33 full years in the state of Pennsylvania, the state of Montana, and currently in the state of Ohio. This is my current church on the screen, Freedom Bible Church. We're a small church uh, about 35 miles west of Cleveland, Ohio, and this morning our church service started at nine. It's finished already, and our church, um, we had the chaplain for the Cleveland Browns, who's a good friend of mine, preaching for us, so at the men's conference, the chaplain for the Colts will be there. We had the chaplain for the Browns with us this morning. It's a small church that we planted four years ago, and um, we're, uh, we're uh, thankful that they let me be on loan a lot of different weekends throughout the year, because I'm also not only the pastor of Freedom Bible Church, but I'm the president of Ancient Path Disciple Making. You can see this next slide. That's our, our ministry. It is a nonprofit missionary uh, ministry that equips leaders to build disciple making ministries following the ancient path of Christ. And I've been privileged to be walking that path with Pastor Ryan and leaders here at, at New Heights for over three years now. And um, I'm thankful for that connection that we've been able to have. I shared that I was in Montana at a church where we planted that church 17 years ago in 2005, and we were at that church, had a man that I met coaching Little League. I coached his son in Little League, and then his business sponsored our team in Little League. We got to be good friends. They started coming to our church. Every time that I go back out to Montana, I serve on the board of directors for Montana Bible College. My friend Jim wants me to stay at his house. And every time I'm there, he lets me have a car. I've driven several different cars of his. And I remember back about 15 years ago, Jim told me, hey, I've got this Camaro convertible that you can take any time if you want to take it for a drive. And some of you all know cars better than I do, but I think that it's, it's up around 400 horsepower. Does that sound right or am I off on that? 350, 400? It, this car had some guts to it. So one summer, the day before school started, Stacy and I said, let's take our kids down to Yellowstone. We lived 80 miles north of Yellowstone National Park in the Rocky Mountains of Montana. So let's take the kids in a ride with the convertible. So we drove down the valley, and the speed limit there through the valley, through the curves and things, was about 60, maybe 65 miles an hour. So you entered, if you've been to Yellowstone before, the west entrance in West Yellowstone. Then we drove through the park with the top down, and we stopped to look at the paint pots. I think we saw Old Faithful that time, and we've been there a number of different times living that close. And we exited through the north entrance. And what I was really looking forward to was the ride home. Because when we exit through the north entrance, through Gardner, Montana, it's about 65 miles an hour all the way up to Livingston, Montana, where the interstate cuts through. Then we had about 40 miles of interstate with a 75-mile-an-hour speed limit. Now, today it's up to 80, but even at that time, 75 really is just a suggestion. So I thought, we're going to take this car out there, and we are going to roll. We're going to have fun with that top down. The kids are really going to enjoy this last day of summer. 
Well, on our way north towards the interstate, we got a flat tire. And I took the spare tire out of the trunk, and to my dismay, it was a donut, not a full tire. And you know, you're like 45, 55 miles an hour. So here I was in this 400 horsepower convertible Camaro on the interstate, 75 mile hour speed limit, and we're going 55, and that's all I dared take that thing over those mountain passes. You see, here we were, we had all this power available to us, and we just couldn't use it. When I think about the Holy Spirit, we have all this power of the Holy Spirit available to us. It's not that we can't use it, it's that we don't use it many, many times. Well, that same power of the Holy Spirit that's available to us was available, believe it or not, to Christ, to Jesus. And we're going to see today how Jesus was dependent on that Holy Spirit to do with the things that he did, and how you and I, we can live lives as disciples of Jesus in dependency on the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand that this whole month at New Heights, we're going to be studying the Holy Spirit. And for me in my life, getting to know the Holy Spirit was a real game changer. I don't know where y'all grew up. I grew up in a small Baptist church in Northwest Ohio. And in our church, I never heard about the Holy Spirit until we were doing baptisms because the pastor would baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the only time I ever heard. But then when I went away to Bible college in 1985, I attended a, a small church there and the pastor there preached about the Holy Spirit. I remember he did like a four or five week series, sort of like you're doing now this month, about who is the Holy Spirit. And I learned how to listen to the Holy Spirit because he speaks to us through God's word. And then he will remind us of God's word as we're going through our lives. And he will prompt us to do things that he wants us to do, things that Christ himself did as we're going through days. And, and I really learned to to have this relationship, deeper relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, in my life. And, and I really believe that in order for all of us to live as disciples of Christ, imitating Christ, that we must listen to and depend on the Holy Spirit and live this life of dependency. We have all this power available to us, and let's, let's use it. I want to show you a slide sort of as our background today. We're going to be in, in two different scripture passages today. Here's a map. Our next slide is a map. And you can see on here uh, Israel. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4 briefly as a prelude today, really setting us up for John chapter 5. And we're going to read a short story there about Jesus living with dependency on the Spirit. In Luke 4, we're going to be at Bethany. Can you see that on the slide? It's just above, it's in the center of the, of the map, just above the Dead Sea, Bethany. That is where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. After he was baptized by John the Baptist, he headed west. Can you see west across the Jordan River? There's a big empty space on the map between the Dead Sea and Judea. Can you see that empty space? That's the desert. That's the Judean wilderness. It's like the, the face of the moon there. Uh, most times of the year, it's just barren, it's rock, it's sand, it's desert. Jesus is going to go there. And then in Luke chapter 4, he's going to head up north to Galilee. Can you see Galilee? Just right by the Sea of Galilee to the, to the top part of the map. He's going to head there. That's where we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. 
And then almost two years later, we're going to jump to John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, he's going to be in Jerusalem. And you can see that on the map. It is just west of the Dead Sea, um, just north of where you can see the word Judea there. That's where we're going to be today. Remember those because we're going to point those out in a little bit. Well, let's take a look at this prelude now in Luke chapter 4. The date of this is right around like November or December of 26 A.D. This is about three and a half years before Jesus is crucified. Jesus went to um, Bethany that we saw on the map and was baptized by John. Let's read verse 1, Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan near Bethany and was led by the Spirit into the desert. We saw that on the map. Uh, And he was in the desert 40 days and 40 nights. If you remember, he was fasting and praying, and he was being tempted by the devil. And then he returned from there. And then about a year and a half later, John, or Luke 5, chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee, remember, on the map to the north, in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the Judean countryside. Just want to point out three quick things from these these two verses here. First of all, did you notice that Jesus was filled by the Spirit? We read that he was full of the Spirit. Now, how did this happen? How did the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus? Actually, when he was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit came upon him. Now, does the Holy Spirit come upon us ever? Well, the answer is yes, and we're going to see that in just a second. But how does he come upon us? Does he come upon us when we're baptized, immersed in water? Is that how it happens? Well, the the answer is no. The answer is when we believe and put our faith in Christ to forgive our sins, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and actually indwells us. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, which says that you also were included in Christ When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then having believed, believed in the gospel in Christ, you were marked in him with a seal. When what is it? The promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon us, not when we're baptized, but when we put our faith in Christ. Now, Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit when he was baptized. And then we see also in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus was led by the Spirit. He was filled by the Spirit and then led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into the desert, to be tempted by the enemy. And then we saw in verse 14 that Jesus also was empowered by the Spirit. Now, the question you might ask is, wait a minute, wasn't Jesus and isn't Jesus God? Doesn't Jesus have limitless power? In fact, we read in Scripture that Jesus is the creator. He created the entire earth. That's power. We read that Jesus right now is building a place for us in heaven. That's power. We read that right now Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word, we see in Hebrews 1.3. So if Jesus is God and if Jesus is all-powerful, then why did he have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We don't know for sure, but I really believe that Jesus, as a fully God and and fully man, 
that in his humanity, one seminary professor says he, he veiled his deity so that his humanity could be fully expressed. And also to set an example for us that he depended on the Holy Spirit, so we as his disciples, as his followers, as his imitators, he showed us that we need to depend on the Holy Spirit and not live out our lives in our humanity, but in dependency on the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was filled by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and now we read in verse 18 and 19 of Luke chapter 4, Jesus said, and this is in Galilee, in Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He not only anointed me, but he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to pro proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he was announcing, these are the things I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, help the blind, anoint, uh, or I'm going to help the poor, recovery of sight for the blind, release the, I'm going to do all these different things because the Holy Spirit has anointed me and sent me to do this. So we see first here that he was anointed by the Spirit to do all this ministry. Uh, it was interesting to me when I was studying this word anointing, uh, the meaning of this word is different than I thought it was going to be. The meaning of this word anoint means that the Holy Spirit assigned this to me. Jesus received this assignment from the Holy Spirit to preach, to heal, to set prisoners free. That assignment came from the Holy Spirit, and Jesus submitted to that instruction of the Holy Spirit. And that goes hand in hand with the other thing he said in verse 18, was that I was sent by the Holy Spirit. He was sent by the Spirit. And this is interesting, Jesus didn't wait for people to come to him, he was sent by the Spirit to people. He went out to get them rather than waiting for them to come to him. And so that's just, that's our prelude today. We shared this yesterday during our training with our leaders here, this idea that, that Jesus was really dependent on the Spirit, filled by, led by, empowered by, uh, anointed by, and sent by the Spirit. And now we're going we're gonna to switch over to John chapter 5 in Jerusalem, and we're going to see this being lived out. We're going to see just a short story here of Jesus being filled by, led by, empowered by, anointed by, and sent by the Spirit. John chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 1, we're going to read that sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, on our map, for a feast of the Jews. Now, this is probably the Feast of the Tabernacles, which takes place in October. This is probably the year 28 AD, almost two years after Jesus was baptized. Went up to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Now let's take a little look at a map of, of what it's, this would look like. The vantage point that we're looking at here would be from the east, facing west. Um, to the east is the Mount of Olives and also the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you're in the Garden of Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives, you're looking towards Jerusalem. And you can see on the map, uh, on the left hand, that's the, the Temple Mount. Now, at any of these Jewish feasts, people would come to Jerusalem for the feast, and that Temple Mount would be packed with people. I've 
been there on the Temple Mount before, and I've been told that you can put 50,000 people on that Temple Mount. It's huge. It's enormous. So there's people there. They're bringing offerings. They're bringing sacrifices. They are there for the festival. If you look to the right, to the north of the Temple Mount, where it says the Pool of Israel, right near there is the Sheep Gate that we just read about. And then north of that, you can see on the map, is Bethesda the pool of Bethesda. Now, this next picture shows what that looks like today. If you were to go there today, this is what the pool of Bethesda looks like. And we, we lead, our ministry leads life of Christ, disciple-making, study tours in Israel, and we go here. And you can see where those trees are. Just beyond those trees is where the Temple Mount is. I want you to remember the proximity, not very far from the Temple Mount. Let's take a look at a picture of what it might have looked like at that time, people at the pool. Why were they going into the pool? Two different reasons. Before going up onto the Temple Mount, you had to become ceremonially clean. So people could use this water source to go become ceremonially clean, travel to the south end of the, of the Temple Mount, and, then, and ascend the steps there to take their offering. The other reason why is a Bible verse that's actually missing from our text today. You see, at this time, there was a tradition that an angel would come to this pool and stir the water. And when the water got stirred, different people with different ailments, different diseases, different infirmities, they would try to get into the pool because the tradition was the first person into the pool after the angel stirred the water would be healed. Now, that was a tradition. We don't know how true it is or not, but that's why people would be there. Ceremonial cleansing before going up on the temple, and then also people who had infirmities. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Here, at the pool, a great number of disabled people used to lie. Not, they didn't tell the truth, but they laid down on the ground. They used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, that was verse 3. What's the next verse here? It's verse 5. It's like, what happened to verse 4? I didn't take it out. This is what the NIV 1984, this is what the ESV, this is what the NASB, this is what the, the NLT, all these different, they're not in there. If you have the King James, it's in there. Well, why did the other translations take them out? You see, in the 1940s, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they were just, the, the texts that were found were older texts, closer to the original writing time, and they did not have that verse 4. Verse 4 gave the details of when an angel would come, stir the water, gave evidence of that tradition. Well, they couldn't find that verse in the earlier writings and concluded that somebody later, as they were copying the verses, sort of gave that edit gave that commentary to help people understand what was going on, though it wasn't probably in the original text. That's why it's missing here. But we know what it says about the angel. That just gave us some context. So they used to lie by the pool, verse 5. One of these people was there, who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Let's remember that. We'll know that later. 38 years he was there. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? That's a funny thing to ask. You see, there was some doubt as to his desire to actually get better. And we're going to see in a little bit what that doubt was. 
Verse 7, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else gets down ahead of me. In other words, I'm a victim here, Jesus. Verse 8, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Verse 9, at once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. It was a Saturday, a holy day, the day that they were instructed by God to keep it holy. Verse 10, and and so the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, they were the morality police. They were the law inspectors. They said to the man who had been healed, hey, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you carry your mat. Now, the law of God said to honor the Sabbath. The law of God did not forbid carrying a mat, but the law of the Jews did forbid carrying the mat. He broke their law, not God's law. And according to their law, they could actually stone the guy to death for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Verse 11, but the man replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. He's blaming Jesus. He's he's passing the buck to Jesus. So they asked him, well, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Let's go get him. Verse 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Remember, it was the festival. The the normal population of Jerusalem was about 75 to 80,000 people. During one of these festivals three times a year, 500,000 people could be in that city. Easy to slip away into the crowd. Verse 14. Well, later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. This gives us an idea of what this guy was really like. This was a bad dude because he had been sinning and Jesus told him to stop sinning. And I wonder, what was this guy sinning about? What was he doing? He's laying by the pool there. He'd been an invalid for 38 years. Was he harassing people who were coming by? Was he making a pretty good living out of of badgering people and begging for, for money? Was he rude to people? Was he crude towards the women who came there? Was he vulgar? I, I don't know, but he was, there was something that Jesus saw where he was a bad dude and told him, hey, you better stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. Now, when we sin, and you and I all do, don't we? When we sin, there can be natural consequences to our sin. For instance, If I was driving a 400-horsepower car on the roads of Montana at 100 miles an hour over the speed limit, that's a sin, breaking the law, and I got a ticket, that's a natural consequence towards my sin. If somebody was to lie to somebody else, the person you lied to is going to trust you less. That's a natural consequence to your sin. If you get drunk and act like a fool, your reputation goes down. That's a natural consequence to your sin. So there's natural consequences to our sin, but Jesus is hinting here that sometimes there are supernatural consequences to our sin. And Jesus warned him, you better stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. And sometimes when we are walking down a path of sin, God in his love will correct us. He will uh, chastise us. 
and to get our attention to repent and turn from that sin so we can walk in freedom, walk in righteousness, and enjoy this life with him. Sometimes there's supernatural consequences to our sin. God gets our attention. And Jesus was warning him about this. Verse 15, the man went away and he told these Jews, the Jewish leaders, hey, it was Jesus. He's the one who made me well. He's a tattletale on top of everything else that he's doing. He didn't like it when Jesus rebuked him and corrected him and gave him this warning. Verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews, this is the Jewish leaders, they persecuted Jesus. They verbally assaulted Jesus. They made threats towards Jesus. And this is actually the first time in the Gospels that they started to come after Jesus. They didn't like that he did this good deed, this miracle of God on the Sabbath. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder now to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which incurred their persecution, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this is the first time that he revealed that he was actually the son of God. First time he revealed that. Verse 19, well, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. And this is a weird statement because here's Jesus, the creator of the world, the sustainer of the world, but in his humanity, he limited himself while he was on this planet. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself, but can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. So Jesus did what the father had him do, and he did it depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to examine just four things from this passage that Jesus did, depending on the Spirit to do. And these are four things that you and I can do as we depend on the Holy Spirit to do them. The first thing is that Jesus is listening. He's listening to the Holy Spirit. Here's my question. Why at this particular point in time did Jesus go to that particular man at the pool of Bethesda? Uh, why did he do it then? Uh, I want to have you look at a passage from Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, where uh, three times a year, we'll look at the next passage here, three times a year, all your men, Jewish men, must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. Where will he choose? It's going to be the temple in Jerusalem. And at, you're going to meet there at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's the Feast of the Passover. That's what we celebrate next week, Easter. And then at the Feast of Weeks, that's seven weeks after Easter, after Passover. And that's what is Pentecost. And also at the Feast of Tabernacles. That's in October. That's where they were at now. So it was Jewish law that Jesus, as a Jewish man, had to go to Jerusalem for these festivals. Jesus became a legal Jewish man at the age of 12, and so at this point in time, he's about 35 years old. So for the last 22, 23 years, Jesus was in Jerusalem three times a year. That's about 65 times or more over the past 23 years. Jesus has been at this pool before. This guy has been there 38 years. So every year that Jesus has been there, that dude has been there. 
Jesus has seen him before. He's seen this guy sinning before. He knows he's a bad dude. Why did Jesus not confront him prior to this point in time? Why did he wait till now? It was because he was listening to the Holy Spirit, only doing what the Holy Spirit told him to do, what he sees the Father doing. He could have approached him any time, but he waited till now. Let's look at a, another similar leading of the Spirit in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. This would have been uh, about 20 months before that. Uh, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, where we're at now, and he was in the temple courts, and he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Do you remember this story? Verse 15. So Jesus made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Again, Jesus had been to this feast and this festival dozens of times prior to this incident, but he never made a whip before. He had never chased them out before. It was at that particular point in time when he was listening to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit told him, it's go time green light, chase these guys out. Why was this particular point in time important? Because this was just after Jesus had gathered disciples to himself. He was modeling for his disciples a high view of God. We're teaching you guys how to worship God because they said about him at this point, a zeal for his father's house will consume him. So Jesus was listening to the Holy Spirit, waiting for him to tell him to act, and that's when he did it, at that particular point in time. And when he did that in John chapter 5 with the man at the pool of Bethesda, it was at a particular point in time, so his disciples would see him doing God's work, and also this was the right time to start inciting the Pharisees to want to kill him. And you might say, why is that so important? Well, just a year and a half after this, when Jesus dies, rises from the dead, and ascends into heaven, the apostles, the disciples, they're going to have these same Pharisees wanting to kill them too. And the apostles are going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit too. We see Jesus here listening to the Holy Spirit. One last passage here, John 12, 49 and 50. Jesus said, I do not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus was listening to the Father and listening to the Spirit and repeating to people what they had told him to say. So the Holy Spirit was speaking to Jesus and he was listening. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. How does he do that? Predominantly through his word. He speaks to us through his word. And as you're reading, ask him, Lord, speak to me. Holy Spirit, speak to me. What do you want me to know today? What do you want me to do today? prompt me, and then throughout the day, think about what you read today, and Lord, show me what you want me to do in response to what I read today. He speaks to us as we're reading, and he, he speaks to us by reminding us of what we have read from his word. He speaks to us through other people of God, the word of God and other people of God. I've asked different mentors in my life at different times for advice, and they'll give me godly advice from God's word 
listening to the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was listening to the Spirit. We see, second of all, that he was also looking for opportunities that the Holy Spirit brought into his life. Now, I know some of y'all are hunters, and, and I like to hunt. And I hunted big game out west in Montana when I lived there. And, and hunting in the west is, is a lot of fun because whether you shoot something or not, you've taken a four-mile hike with a gun, and that's always a good day. Beautiful scenery, holding a high-powered weapon, and you would walk up over a, a, an edge of a hill and look down with your binoculars into the draw, and you're looking for any movement, any wildlife. Now, in northern Ohio, where I live, and I guess it's similar here in southern Indiana, is you've got to sit in a tree or in a blind. And as I'm sitting in that tree, I'm also looking. Sometimes I have my binoculars up. Any type of movement in the woods or on the edge of the field, I'm looking but I'm also listening for any types of cracks or dry leaves. And I know the difference between a squirrel and a deer walking through that woods because I'm, I'm listening, but I'm also looking. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was looking for the people that the Holy Spirit brought across his path to do ministry to. In verse 6, it says, When Jesus saw him lying there, he approached him with a question, do you want to get well? And then in verse 19, he said, the son can only do what he sees the father doing. So he is looking. His eyes were open to what the father was doing and to what people that the father brought across his path. Who was the Holy Spirit leading to him? God is always at work in your life. And in my life, he's sanctifying us. He's transforming us to the image of his son. He's working in our life, but he's also working through our lives in the lives of other people. He's using us to encourage other people, to build other people up, to draw other people to Christ, to share the gospel with them. So we keep our eyes open, looking for who is God bringing into our lives to touch Whatever you do, if you're a, a teacher in school, there are students that God's brought across your path. There are co-workers that God's brought across your path. Uh, if you are involved in, in coaching in a summer sports league or a, a different sport league, God's bringing people into your lives as a, as a basketball coach and a baseball coach and a, a little league coach. God has brought a lot of students, young people, into my life that I can encourage for Christ. Three different families from a little league season started coming to our church because God brought them into our life and I had my eyes open and was looking to reach out to these different people. So wherever you go, whether you're in a bowling league or a volunteer fire department or, or part of a gym, Planet Fitness, or, or walking in the park, God is bringing people across your path. So what do we do? We look and we listen. Next thing that we do, like Jesus did, after we look and listen, is we respond. We see Jesus responding to the Holy Spirit. He took a step of obedience when the Holy Spirit spoke to him by taking action. In verse 8 and 9, he healed the man that was right there in front of him. Verse 17, he said, the Father is always working, and I too am working. I'm taking actions. I'm taking this step of obedience. Remember when the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus? He gave him an assignment. Uh, he assigned this man, this paralyzed man, this invalid, to Jesus, and he responded by taking this step of action. You see, the Holy Spirit is at work, 
comforting us. He dwells in us. He comforts us. He counsels us. He convicts us of sin. We saw today that he empowers us like he empowered Jesus. He leads us and prompts us to work and to serve, to encourage people, but also he prompts us to share the gospel with people. And when we're prompted to share, we have a choice. We can respond with an either a yes, I take action like Jesus did, or a no. We can respond with a no. And when we respond with a no to the Holy Spirit, what happens? Ephesians 4.30 says that we can grieve the Spirit. We grieve the Spirit when we sin and when we reject instead of respond. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says that we can quench the Spirit. We actually dump a bucket of water on the Holy Spirit's fire when we say no. Uh, Every morning when I start my quiet time in the Scriptures, I pray for Stacy and me. I pray for our children. I pray for our grandchildren. We've got one son who's not married yet. I pray for his future wife, whoever she is. Our granddaughter isn't married yet, but she prayerfully will be. And so I'm praying for her future husband now, wherever he's at, that her, her, his parents will raise him to be godly. But I pray for, for us and our kids that we will recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us each day. And that when he speaks to us, we will be quick to respond affirmatively. I pray that every day for me, for my wife, for our kids. So the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, prompting us, how do we respond? Uh, My wife Stacy is a nurse at a school for developmentally disabled kids. And at the school, about 140 students in all the classrooms, because of, of the disabilities, they need classroom aids. Some of the students have their own personal aides or personal nurse, but there's classroom aides in, in all the church or all the, all the classrooms at the school. And I think you all know this, but teachers are overworked, underpaid, and underappreciated, as are their classroom aides. Uh, Stacy noticed that one of these classroom aides a few Christmases ago. And where we live in northern Ohio, north central, it's, it's cold, just like it is here, it was noticed that one of these classroom aides came to school, left school, wearing a hoodie. That was her outer garment. And so Stacy noticed that and talked to her and, and was prompted by the Holy Spirit that I need to buy a winter coat for this lady. She found out she didn't have a winter coat. She was saving up money. She was a single mom to get a coat for her, her son. And so the Holy Spirit was telling Stacy, buy her a coat. And Stacy responded by saying yes and talked to the woman and said, God's telling me to get you a coat. And like most people would be like, no, no, I'm okay. No, I'm, I'm insisting on it. God's telling me to do this for you. I want you to go to this website, pick out the coat you want, and we're going to get you this winter coat. Stacy responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. To be dependent on the Holy Spirit like Jesus was, we must respond to his prompting. And then finally, in addition to responding, know that it is risky. Jesus was dependent by risking in obedience. In verse 9, remember, it was the Sabbath. Jesus broke the Jewish law, not God's law, but the Jewish law by healing and aiding. And he aided the man And by doing that, he broke the Jewish law, not God's law, by getting him to carry that mat. In verse 14, believe me, it was risky 
to confront the bad dude. He's a bad dude. Who knows what he was going to do? Could he assault Jesus for warning him about his sin? In verse 16, it was risky because he uh, started, he was being persecuted by the Jewish leaders. In verse 18, he claimed to be God. He let the cat out of the bag, and now they wanted to kill him. Not just persecute him, but kill him. Jesus was taking a great risk when he obeyed the Holy Spirit. Now, in other countries around this world, people risk persecution and death by obeying the Holy Spirit. It is, it is against the law in most Muslim countries to share the gospel. You are risking your life by obeying the Holy Spirit. Here, where we live, people can risk their jobs. Many people risked and lost their jobs because they didn't want to take the vaccine for COVID. And I'm not taking one side or another on that, but are we willing to risk losing our jobs to be obedient to the Holy Spirit? Sometimes we risk losing friends. I one time had to confront a sibling of mine about their sin. It did not go well. I took a risk by obeying the Holy Spirit to do that in love, and it didn't go well. There's a young man at our church. He's in his late 20s, and a couple years ago, he invited everybody in his shop to our Christmas Eve outreach event at our church, and they mocked him. They made fun of him. They persecuted him. He took an obedient risk and paid the consequences just like Jesus did. Jesus took risks at the prompting of the Holy Spirit and he told his disciples that they would do the same things. Let's check out Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus was telling them, hey, you're going to receive power. People are not all going to like what you have to say. People will reject you. People will persecute you. Especially when we talk about the gospel, and it includes sin and repentance. Jesus warned them that there would be risks, and then they found them to be true. In Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, this is what happened when they were witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, all the religious leaders, came up to Peter and John, and they were there at the pool of Bethesda when Jesus did that in John chapter 5. They came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were obeying the Holy Spirit, taking an obedient risk. Verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until morning. The Holy Spirit gave them power to be witnesses. They took an obedient risk by sharing the gospel of Christ with people. Then they were persecuted, just like Jesus, and arrested and thrown in prison because they responded obediently to the Holy Spirit. That is our life. On planet earth as disciples of jesus followers of jesus we live depending on the holy spirit filled by the spirit led by the spirit empowered by the spirit anointed and given assignments by the spirit and sent by the spirit we look and we listen and we respond and we risk that's all part of dependency on the holy spirit 
let me pray for us today that we would live these kind of lives. Next week is Easter. We have an opportunity at our church. We're doing a breakfast too. And we're telling our people, invite your lost friends to Easter breakfast and our Easter service. It's an opportunity for them to meet Jesus. And it's a risk by inviting people, but it's a risk worth taking, obeying the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the model of Jesus, that although being God himself, he could have in his own power done all these different things, but he modeled for us dependency on the Spirit so that we can live the same way, living an exciting life, an obedient life, doing exactly what you tell us to do, just like Christ did. I pray, Lord, that we would be students of the Word, listening to your Spirit as we read. I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would remind us of what we read so that we can live it out. And even if it means taking a risk, Father, that we would take an obedient risk for you and let you do the work. We pray for our friends. I pray for my friends. I pray for my neighbors that I invited to Easter service next week. I pray that they would come, Lord. I pray that our, our friends here at, at New Heights and our friends and our, our family back at, at Freedom Bible Church, that we would take obedient risks, obeying the Spirit, to invite our friends and share the gospel with them, Lord, the words of eternal life. Pray that we would do that, Lord, in the power of your spirit. Pray through Jesus. Amen.